about him uh, really kind of in a negative sense, don't we? Uh, a lot of times we're very critical of him. He, he certainly reminds us a lot of times of our impetuousness and the fact that we say things before we think. And um, just the, 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 you got to love the heart of Peter, though. You really do, because, I mean, he was all in. He was either all in right or all in wrong, but he was always all in. And uh, living diligently his life and fervently. And uh, what a character. As we get to these letters that, that Peter writes, you're going to see a little different side of Peter. Because I always see Peter as uh, the one that's, uh, that's uh, immature, loud, boisterous, probably a little bit of arrogance about him, a little bit of I'm better than others kind of thing. And the Peter that you see in these letters is a much different Peter than we read of in the Gospels as far as his character. And so I believe that God had done a great work in his life by the time he penned these letters. And uh, he's writing these. uh, Notice in verse number 1, the Bible says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkled of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. And so uh, Peter is the human instrument that God used to pen these letters. And there's a whole list. And when I study uh, to get these notes together for you, uh, there's a lot of things they give, internal evidences of the book, external evidences of the book, that uh, support the fact that Peter is the human instrument or the human author. And earlier in the surveys, I was giving you a lot of that information, but the truth of the matter is the only thing we need to have as the reason we hold to the fact that Peter's the author is the fact that the Bible says he was. And so I've kind of, kind of left off a lot of that because the truth is we don't need it. If we hold this Bible to be infallible and inerrant and inspired by God, and every word of it is perfect, then if it says that Peter was the author, then Peter was the author. Uh, this, this didn't even come into question until the early 1800s, and during that time you got a lot of guys coming in and doing this, what they call higher criticism and lower criticism of the texts, and there's a lot of that going on today where they dissect and pick apart the Bible and they explain away why it can't be this and it can't be that. <clears throat> and the Bible talks about the fact that in the last days there were going to be scoffers. There were going to be people that were going to come, and they were going to talk against the Word of God, and they were going to uh, make it a mockery, and they were, going to, uh, they were going to cause it to be not a truth anymore in the eyes of people. And uh, we understand that these are the last days, because certainly we're living in the time. So I need no other, I need no other explanation of this book, author, than the first verse, when it says that Peter is the one that wrote it. Now, he writes it to those, and it's an interesting phrase that's used here. He writes it to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, it's written to both Hebrews and Gentiles. We'll see that in a few moments. Uh, But probably more Gentiles read this than the Hebrews, the Jews did. Um, And he writes it to those that are scattered abroad, these pilgrims, these, these strangers, if you will, they are scattered. And it seems to be the underlying theme of a lot of these New Testament books because it was the case in the early church, in the early, that first century especially, that uh, great persecution came. And Peter talks about that in this letter. He talks about the fact that the reason for this, 
uh, was something that, that was part of God's plan. Now, if you'll remember back uh, when Jesus was on the earth just after His resurrection, He met with His disciples, and He gave them what we call the Great Commission. He tells them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Um, he tells them to, to, uh, to teach them in all things, and He teaches them to baptize them, and, and that, that they were to disciple them and teach them and train them. And then he tells them, he says, but I want you to tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power. And that, of course, took place in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8 on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit's power came and rested on them. And then they went. And the Bible says later on in the book of Acts, these are they which have turned the world upside down. And they have, they have certainly uh, done a work. And, uh, but the problem was they were staying in the area of Jerusalem and that area especially uh, some of the bigger cities, they were just staying where they were at. And so I believe that one of the big reasons that God brings and allows the persecution to come was to scatter the Christians because they weren't going into all the world. They were staying where they were at, they were being fed, and they were enjoying the Christian life. And persecution comes and it causes them to scatter and to, to flee the persecution. And everywhere they went, they took the gospel message with them. Which, by the way, that ought to be the way you and I do Everywhere we go, we ought to take the gospel message with us. And so uh, he, uh, he's uh, trying to deal with the relationship between the believer and the world. And his, this first letter that he writes uh, speaks very specifically to this subject matter. What should our relationship be with the world? Should there be any relationship with the world? And what relationship, what parts of our relationship should we steer clear of and not be a part of? And so he addresses these things in this first letter. A very, very practical book for Christians who don't understand what our role in the world today is. And if there's any book that addresses this um, in the Bible, uh, I would have to say it'd have to be this book. Uh, it is very, very clear addressing our relationship to the world. And uh, so he deals with this. He uh, there's a, certainly is an increase. To look with me in uh, let's look in First Peter chapter four for a minute, and verse number four. There certainly is an increase <clears throat> of uh, of suffering that takes place. And he's using after he exhorts them with some things, he's using Christ as the great example. Which, by the way, Christ is always our great example, isn't he? He starts in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. He that no longer, he that, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatry. So again, this, this sounds to me more like these are probably not the Hebrews that he's talking to in this portion of the letter, but more the Gentiles. Because the Hebrews, even though they may not have had their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they still, just by the nature of them being God's children, were told to live holy lives, and they had a law to follow. So it sounds to me like he's speaking in this portion of the letter primarily to the Gentiles. But notice what he says here, "...wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account uh, to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead." And so, obviously, there was some persecution, either verbal or physical or both, 
where people were criticizing these believers who once lived a worldly lifestyle, who once they got saved, God did a work in them, a transforming work. And He always will do that to those that trust in Him. He will do a sanctifying work in us, and it may not be as fast as others, but He will always have some kind of a cleansing effect to the lives and the hearts of men. And so He does this in these people, these, these, these folks that are scattered about, um, these uh, strangers, if you will, uh, that He speaks about. Uh, he does this in their lives. And they, go, they get criticized, they get persecuted, because they no longer live that way. And their friends that are in the world, that are in sin, they're coming to them, they're criticizing them, they're giving them a very difficult time, saying, you know, they're reviling them, they're, they're speaking evil against them, because they won't participate any longer in the things that they used to. By the way, I think that's a great word of testimony to those early believers, don't you? That they did not do the things they did when they were not saved. It would be a great testimony for you and I that we would clean our lives up and live according to the Word of God once we're saved. And that ought to be the desire of every Christian. And so Peter is speaking to these folks. This is who he's talking to. This is kind of the background, the setting that he finds these people in. And he does several things here. He exhorts them to stand firm in the grace of God. In other words, since God has given to them of His grace unmerited favor, He has given unto them forgiveness of their sin and eternal life, and the strength to be able to overcome sin, then he tells them to stand firm in that grace, to, to live in that grace. He secondly comforts them by stressing the fact that they have hope in Christ, uh, speaking of eternal life, uh, the fact that these things are not worthy to be compared of the things that are yet to come, and the fact that heaven is uh, going to be the time that God glorifies those that have trusted in Him. We get a glorified body. We're not under uh, the, the, uh, the bondage of sin. We're not under the influence of sin any longer. We don't have pain and suffering any longer. And uh, so he, he gives them some hope. He comforts them by stressing this, that even though they're in the fiery trials now, uh, there is a hope of, of a coming day where they'll be delivered from all of this. And they have that through Christ. And so he takes the opportunity to comfort them in this area. He informs them of their ability that God gives them to endure the fiery trials. Look with me in chapter 4, verse number 12 for a moment. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing had happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. So again, using these words of comfort that the Glory to come is greater, and to withstand this persecution, these fiery trials, that God will give them the strength to endure those things as He has given Himself as an example, that it can be done and that uh, He expects us to do so as well. Then He instructs them that there is a divine purpose. We're going to look a little bit further at that here in chapter 5 in just a little bit. But He instructs them that there is a divine purpose behind what God has uh, in store for this. The book can be divided basically into three sections. I'm going to give you those three real quick here. It's only five chapters long, so it's a fairly short book. But chapter 1 and verse number 1 through chapter 2 and verse number 12, he deals with the salvation of the believer. The salvation of the believer. Um, in this, he points them to uh, the future realization of, of their inheritance, the fact that uh, there's a glory that is waiting them. 
and that they will uh, be inheriting eternal life. And so he points them in that mind, in, in that direction. He reminds them of the present joy uh, of the living hope that they have, uh, even though this this life that they're living is currently responsible for their persecutions and their various trials. He's he still talks about the present joy of living this way. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 6 for a moment. Chapter 1 and verse number 6. He says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice. Now, that's an interesting phrase if they're undergoing persecution, isn't it? If they're in fiery trials. He says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And he says, listen, take joy in the present trials, because there's something coming down the road uh, that is going to be well worth it. So he deals with the future realization of their inheritance. He deals with the present joy that they can have uh, in understanding this hope. And then he uh, refers to the past prophets. And uh, he does this in, uh, let's see here if I've got the verse. I didn't write the verse down here. Let's see if I can get it real quick. Uh, Okay, verse number 10. Verse number 10. He uses the past prophets to demonstrate uh, the fact that they were going to be receiving this gospel grace, and it was going to be uh, up to them to propagate it. He says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed, and not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them and have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look into. So Peter, trying to give credibility to the message uh, to these folks that, hey, this isn't just me saying this. You know as well that the prophets have told you this. This is what they prophesied, and it's here now. And so kind of giving them some foundational things to uh, hold on to regarding their salvation and the joy through suffering. And so he deals primarily with that in the first section of the book. The second section of the book deals with the submission of the believer. The submission of the believer. This is found in chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, and about verse number 12 or so. And uh, he kind of turns to this relationship between the believer and the world. Having established the fact that the believer is to endure these persecutions, these fire trials, they're to rejoice in them. Um, they have Christ to look to as an example. They have the prophets that have prophesied this in the past. They have a future hope that they're holding to. All of these things are to encourage them to endure these persecutions. Now he deals with the relationship between the believer and the world. He deals with the fact that because they are saved, there are some things they need to submit to. Uh, I'm not going to take time to read all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. We don't have time in Sunday school to do that this morning. But I would encourage you, because it's so helpful to know how we're to, to deal with things in this life, to take some time, maybe this afternoon or this week, to study through chapter 2 and chapter 3, 
and learn some of these things that Peter instructs them as to their relationship with the world. There are several things that he does. He uh, starts by appealing to them uh, to be submitted to the governmental authority that is over them uh, for the Lord's sake. So as much as is within the bounds of Scripture, they are to yield to the governmental authority over them. There are people that uh, are in this world today. My son and I, just in traveling back this week, we went past the church. And they had a church and some buses and some, some vehicles of the church. And around the church, they had these large fences with these rolled razor wire at the top all the way around the church. And I, I know of a group, and I don't know if these, this church was part of it. It probably was. But I know of a group that completely denies any, any submission to the government. They don't think the government has any uh, bounds over them at all, and so they kind of refute that. They expect the government to come and raid their churches, and that's why they do this. They put these things up to try to deter that. And um, the truth is, the Bible tells us that as much as within us is, as much as it is within the standards of God's Word, if it does not violate God's Word and God's law, then we are to be submitted to that. The reason that he gives for that, let's, let's look at it for a moment here. He, do, he says we're supposed to do this for the Lord's sake. But let's look, if you will, in chapter 2, and we're just going to read a few verses of this. Look in verse number 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king is supreme, or unto governors, or unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. (coughs) He says that we're to do this for the Lord's sake, and then he goes on to explain that it is a matter of testimony. The fact that we submit to the government and we're not rebellious to the government, we don't lift our hand against the government on things that don't pertain to Scripture, uh, then, then we are to submit to those things. We're to submit to anything that does not violate God's Word because it is a testimony. We're to do it as unto the Lord, it says. And every time you find that phrase, as unto the Lord, it means that we are to do it as if we were being submissive to the Lord. That's the type of submission that we're supposed to have to it. Now, if we start putting that into practical application, I'm not sure we really want to do that today. Because there's going to be a lot of us that are going to be like, oh, wow, okay. There are a lot of things that our government has laws on that according to the Bible, as Christians, we're to follow that law. And here's what happens. Well, everybody's breaking that law, and that's not really one they enforce, so I don't really have to obey it. And that's our excuse, isn't it? I'm going to say one here, and it's going to, I know I'm going to get some comments after the service. But probably one of the worst ones out there are speed limits. What kind of testimony is it? And Peter says we're to obey those ordinances as unto the Lord, as if it's something God gave us to do. Provided it's not in violation of Scripture, obviously. I'm not trying to meddle, folks, but I'm trying to say this. And speed limits, 
just one of the minor ones out there. But are there really any of them minor if it's testimony sake? Uh, I say this because we're living in a world where even God's people have rationalized their disobedience to government simply because, well, they don't really enforce that one. Everybody kind of does that. I went through downtown Atlanta the other night, uh, on the way, or the other day, going down to Florida, and uh, I was going the speed limit and just about got run over. I mean, we had cars going 30, 40 miles an hour faster than I was through downtown Atlanta. And my son will tell you, it, it was rough. Uh, but, folks, we, we've got to be a testimony. We've got to, if we say that we believe that there is a law that is to be obeyed, and it's God's law, and then somebody says, well, the Bible tells you there that you're supposed to be obedient to government, and then we're not, what kind of a testimony is that? So he deals with them in the area of their relationship, being submissive to governmental authority. He also deals with the fact that they're, to, even for social issues, if they're not contrary to Scripture, let's, let's look at this, verse 19. He talks about their relationship between like a servant and a master, uh, civil issues, things with other men and other people. He says, Servants be subject unto your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. So whether it's a good boss or a bad boss, as long as it does not violate Scripture, we are to yield ourselves to them. We're to submit to them. For this is thankworthy if a man is for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well, ye suffer for it, ye take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow His steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth, who when He was reviled, reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not, uh, but committed Himself to Him that judgeth rightly. Four different times in this book, Peter addresses the issue that a Christian, if he is to suffer, it needs to be for righteousness' sake. Not because we have sinned, not because we have done wrong, but if suffering is to be had, it should be had for living rightly. Four different times he deals with that in this small letter. Very important that we learn to submit to governmental authorities. We're to submit to those even in social and civil areas of our lives that have authority over us, such as a boss, a manager, uh, the person that owns the business we work for. Again, until it goes contrary to Scripture, we are to submit to those things, and we're to submit to those things, whether they're a good boss or a bad boss, as we were to submit to God Himself, as we were to submit to the Lord, for the Lord's sake. All right, uh, let's look also at the third one he deals with here. Once he deals with government and he deals with our social and our, and our civil uh, responsibilities of submission, <clears throat> then he deals with the fact that we are to... Uh, be submitted in marriage. Look with me in chapter 3 and verse number 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Again, what is the purpose of this? Testimony. Testimony. Whether they're saved or unsaved. The idea is we're to do this by way of testimony. 
Look with me in verse 2. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even uh, the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy, men, holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Men are saying, Amen to that. My wife has to call me Lord now, right? <laughs> He's dealing with submitting to one another. Because look what he says here now to husbands. Verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. So he deals with the, the uh, uh, submission of the believer in areas of government, in areas of our social and civil re- relationships, in areas of our marital relationships, and as believers one to another. Four different areas he talks about here being uh, submitted one to another. And the reason he does this, once again, is because the Lord was an example for us. Uh, Look with me again, verse number 14. And here we find another one of those examples here. He says, "But But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. There's to be a submission there, one to another. All right, and then the third section of the book is the suffering of the believer, chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 5 and verse number 14. And uh, knowing that the need for defending their faith is growing very rapidly at this point, they're, they're going to have to take a stand for their faith. They're going to have to be bold in their faith because the persecution is to get them to recant and to return to their old life. Uh, he urges them to be ready to do so in two areas. Number one, in, in the area of knowledge and in the area of grace. Uh, to be steadfast, having rooted themselves in the Word of God, but also being gracious at the same time. In the day that we live, there has been, there has been a number of years uh, now that it seems like churches teach their folks that you can only do one or the other. That you can either stand firm for God's Word, or you can be gracious, but you can't do both. The truth is, you can do both. And the reason we know that is because Christ did. He spoke, he spoke the Word with love. There were times He drove the money changers out of the temple. But when He came to a sinner who was repentant and was ready to, to trust Him as their Savior and was, uh, was realizing they needed to turn from some things here and, and, to, and to get their lives straightened out and to turn themselves over to the Lord Jesus Christ and what He was going to do for them on Calvary. When they came to that point and He dealt with their sin, remember how He deals with them. Well, what about the woman at the well? You remember that? Uh, he, she, she said she had no husband. He said, Thou sayest rightly, for thou hast had five husbands, and the man you're with now, uh, he said... He's not even your husband. 
And, and he said, if you had known who you were talking to, you'd asked me and I'd given you water that you'd never thirst again. You remember that? What does he tell her to do? He tells her to go and to sin no more. And she goes and she tells everybody about it. What about the woman that was taken in adultery? They were trying to get him to cast the first stone. And he tells her, he doesn't condone her sin, does he? He says, go, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. He wasn't saying, go on and live in your sin. He was saying, don't sin anymore. But he did it graciously, didn't he? He did it with a heart of love. He did it with a heart of compassion. And it is possible to stand firm on God's Word, to be uncompromising, to be unwavering, and to be gracious. So he, deal, he deals with this with these folks, uh, with the idea of the fact that they're going to need to stand for these things. Um, three different times he tells them if they must... I'm sorry, I, I said four. Three different times, I'm sorry. He tells them that if they must suffer, it should be for righteousness' sake. He does this in chapter 3, and verse number 17. He does it in chapter 2, in verse number 20. And he does it again in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Now, he gives us a charge regarding their suffering. These are the things that he charges and instructs them with regarding their suffering. Number one, he reminds them that as believers in Christ, they are no longer to pursue the lust of the flesh as they did formerly, but rather the will of God. Uh, this is something he charges them that because of God's grace, because of his fact that he saved them, they are no longer to live in the flesh, because this is what they were persecuted for. They were persecuted for not following after the things that they used to. Uh, their friends were giving them a hard time. Their families were giving them a hard time. The second thing he exhorts them in regarding their suffering is to be strong in their mutual love one for another. That during this persecution, they need to be able to have a strong love one for another. In chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, he, he teaches them that they should be exercising their spiritual gifts, the thing that God has enabled them and called them to do. They're to do so with the power of God. They're to rest in these things. They're to do these things in the power of God. And he also lets them know that they should not be surprised when they're reviled for their faith, as God has a purpose in it, and His judgment will come and vindicate all the persecution, all the persecution of believers. And he deals with that in chapter 5. And uh, we're losing a little bit of time here this afternoon, so or this morning, so I'm going to let you guys read some of that. Uh, but we will, we will be dealing with that. Maybe I'll deal with that a little bit at the beginning of next week as we review and get into Second Peter. I'll... I'll touch on that, because for sake of time right now, we're not going to be able to get into that section. Um, just very quickly, a couple things here. Um, he gives them three things as he closes, that elders, those that are in, responsible for the flock, are to be diligent. They're to be gentle shepherds uh, over the flocks that have been placed in their care. The second thing he charges is to the readers that they were to clothe themselves with humility toward one another and toward God. When I said at the beginning, you're going to hear a different Peter in this book than what we all often picture. Uh, he's talking here about their patience, their humility in suffering, uh, their submission one to another. That, to me, doesn't sound like the Peter I read about in the Gospel messages. So God has obviously done a great work in Peter's heart to bring him to this place. He also teaches them that they're to resist their adversary, uh, he does that in 